from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents interviews of ordinary people who choose the Baha'i faith as a way of life. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Kamran Hakim a Baha'i who grew up in Iran and came to the United States when he was 18 to go to university just prior to the 1979 Islamic Revolution. It was during this time that Kamran investigated the Baha'i faith for himself, even though he was raised as a Baha'i. I started the interview by asking Kamran to describe where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I was born in Iran or Persia. Mm -hmm commonly known by some, and I was there for the first 18 years of my life, so I was born there and grew up, basically learned the culture and the language, then after that, I moved to the United States. What I remember from Iran is the fact that the experience was a wonderful experience, Mm -hmm. but nevertheless, there was one aspect of it that is somehow burdensome all the time when I think about it, and that is the fact that since I'm a Baha'i, uh, living in a Muslim country where they do not have a somehow or the other a sense of welcome for mm-hmm. Baha'is is rather challenging. And somehow some people get to show it. Not all, but some people get to show that. Some people not, aren't, aren't so nice to you because you're a Baha'i. That, that's correct. Yeah. But you, one cannot really generalize and say everyone is like that right. uh, because there are wonderful people there too. So, Why is it, Kamran, that the Baha'is are not so welcome in Iran? Uh, you see, the, basically the history of the Baha'i faith goes back to the middle of the 19th century where in Iran there was a lot of prophetic expectations in in regards to the return of their promised one. This it is happens that th- at that time, two sequential appearances took place where both of these personalities, one of whom chose the title of the Bob, meaning the gate, he claimed himself to be a personality similar to John the Baptist of Christianity, and he said, that I have come to prepare the way for someone greater than myself to appear, which in the Muslim world they believe it to be the return of Jesus Christ. So as a result, these two personalities appeared in Iran, and a large number of people accepted this particular religion as the promised religion of God and uh, became Baha'is and they lived according to the laws of the faith. And when you say a large number of, of people, are you, uh, can you give an, you know, an, an idea of how many people you're talking about? Basically, some 
statistics around the time of the Bob, they say that close to 100 to 150,000 people in important circles, in very prominent circles, became, uh, became Bobbies. Mm-hmm. Then later on, the majority of these people became Baha'is, and the faith was growing. And just to give you a perspective of how large the numbers could have been, they only killed, according to some histories, some 20,000 people. So basically, today we are in Iran, there is a population of 250,000, and throughout the world we have something of the order of 6 to 7 million Baha'is. So looking at that community at that time, and just looking at the prominent circles among the most educated, the number of 100 to 150,000 was a very large number. Mm-hmm. And so why was it that uh, development in some ways did not invite, didn't create a welcoming environment for the Baha'is? If you look at the history of religion, we come across a very interesting phenomenon in the sense that there is some parallelism between Islam and Jewish religion in the sense that as soon as the person of the Prophet appears, large numbers of people accept him. However, if you look at the phenomenon of the appearance of Jesus, you will see that when he appeared, a large number of people rejected his claim. And it took close to a century or two before his religion really caught on and people started believing in that. And since there is a parallelism in the history of religion between Islam and Judaism, so it was supposed to repeat the same pattern, there is a very similar pattern between the Baha'i faith and Christianity in the sense that the same way that Christianity was not meant to be caught on quickly, the Baha'i faith was not meant to be caught on quickly. Now, this is the theological slash historical perspective. Now, why is it that people generally are not fond of accepting a new idea? There are several logical reasons for that in the sense that basically majority of people, in, when it comes to religion, they are really followers of the leaders of religion in the sense that they follow a source that they feel to be their point of contact with what the purpose in that religion is supposed to be and a point where they need to follow. It is really, you know, if you look at the foundation of this assumption, you will find that if those individuals who are in the seat of authority are going to relinquish that, to this new personality who has appeared, basically what they are doing is they are saying goodbye to their fame and to their name and to their business and all that which they possess. So in a sense, when you look at the whole thing, you will see that sometimes it's not really to the benefit, it historically has not been to the benefit of the leadership to allow people to either come in contact with this new revelationary phenomenon, or if they come, they have always done their utmost to ensure that a wrong impression is made. So as a result, you do not get the masses to convert. So the clergy 
of the Islamic faith similar to the clergy or ecclesiastics at the time of Jesus discouraged people from investigating the religion or new messenger because it threatened their position in society if people converted to that religion and therefore would lose they would lose power that's that's correct okay all right and this and this is what the bahais were experiencing in the in the case of being in an islamic culture uh, that is very true that oh. is very true and if we read some of the books of history we will see that there are several patterns in various religions that they really allude to the same phenomenon and to the same concept. Mm-hmm. So you grew up as a Baha'i, Kamran? I grew up in a Baha'i family. Mm-hmm. However, in the Baha'i faith, being born into a Baha'i family does not translate into being a Baha'i by default. Because one of the fundamental teachings of the faith is that while religion is having religious faith is extremely important for an individual, nevertheless, religion needs to be independently investigated and accepted by the individual. So my parents had the moral responsibility to teach me about, you know, what they believed and the teachings of the faith. And also, they, the Baha'i Sunday School provided me with information about various other religions. So basically, when I moved to the United States, I had the time to explore various other religions. And basically, at that time, choose for myself whether I want to be a Baha'i or not. Mm-hmm. And that is what I chose for myself. Mm-hmm. Now, how far back does your family go as far as being Baha'i? My family on my uh, father's side are Jewish Baha'i, and on my mother's side, they are Muslim Baha'i. And they go back, basically, to the very earliest stages of the formation of the faith. Now, do you have any personal stories in regards to growing up and not being in such a welcoming society in regards to being a Baha'i? One of the main things that was very bothersome for me when I was in primary school back in Iran was the fact that there were few of my friends who knew that I come from a Baha'i family. And given that, you know, I was at a very impressionable age of around, you know, six or seven, behavior that they exhibited really left a, left a mark in my memory in the sense that, you know, sometimes when they would come and touch me, you know, they would go and wash their hand and they specifically mentioned to the other friends that this fellow is dirty and if you touch him, you need to go and wash up. There was another occasion when I was in high school, I know there was a another Baha'i friend who was attending that same school. As Baha'is, we were to attend religious classes. So basically, in a various grades throughout your educational system, the government would provide one of the classes to be the Quranic sciences, so where you go and you learn about Islam. And since 
Baha'is are supposed to know about other religions. So basically we were asked to participate in this class because they were teaching the Quran and about the various teachings of Islam. So as a result, we participated in there. The teacher was a mullah. Now what is a mullah? A mullah is a religious leader. Is one of the lower grade religious leaders of the religious hierarchy. So he's not an ayatollah. But he's right, he's one of those people who just recently graduated, you know, from the, the School of Divinity, and they start teaching in the schools. So it was the, on the lower echelon. So basically, he would come and teach us about what Islam is all about and so on and so forth. And this guy found out that my friend is a Baha'i, and then later on found that I'm a Baha'i. So one day during the class, you know, he said, if you guys have a true religion, just why don't you come and stand? You know, we had these benches. He said, just to stand up here and say the obligatory prayer. This is the prayer that, you know, we say on a daily basis. Baha'i so say. That's, that's correct. So at that time, I was at an age that I was just beginning to memorize, so I did not know that, but, but the other fellow had already memorized the prayer, so he goes up there and he starts saying it. And throughout his recitation of the obligatory prayer, you know, this, this guy was subjected to all sorts of laughter and belittling and, you know, criticism for the way he was saying it and what he was saying. So I think what I want to say is the mentality and the approach that some of these folks try to instill in the minds of young children from early on that's how to dislike someone who they feel is unaccepted, you know, from a theological point of view. Mm-hmm. So what were the circumstances that led you to leave the country? Basically, I was, you know, at that time, there were a lot of people leaving the country. This was probably a couple of years prior to the revolution. I left around very early part of in January of 1976, in fact. The reason for that was that Iran had limited number of universities and colleges, so it was rather tough to get into colleges there. A lot of people ended up applying for colleges outside of Iran, and a lot of people went to Europe and Australia and United States and so on for education. So the reason I came to United States was to receive my education, then go back. And then in 1978, the revolution took place. Then there was no time to go back at that time. They wouldn't let you back? For Baha'i students, they prevented their parents from sending money. If somebody was receiving money from the government, it was disconnected. This is right after the revolution, because they did not qualify for that anymore. And if the parents were sending money, they could no longer exchange money at the bank at the correct level of exchange. So they had to go to the black market outside and pay this exorbitant amount of money in order to get to change the money and then jump through hoops, basically, in order to get those, that money to the hands of their children in the United States. So they really made it hard for Baha'is to be able to move on. Mm -hmm. Were you in the middle of college when this happened? 
Actually, I started my college as soon as I got to the United States in 1976. When the revolution took place, it was, if I'm not mistaken, it was 1978, so it was right in the middle, right in the middle of that time frame. So by 1980s, when I received my BS degree, and I wanted to go to another university, basically, they had locked down the movement of Iranian students because of the unfortunate events associated with the taking of the hostages. I ended up staying at the same college and continuing my education there. So it was the U.S. government was preventing you from movement because of the hostage crisis? Uh, that's, that, is, that is correct. That, is one of the, that was one of the things that was a part and parcel of the, of the process. It was not very easy. So did the U.S. government contact you and, and said, please don't go anywhere, or how did that work? No, 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 it was not like that. You see, I applied, for example, to go to Canada. Movement to Canada was pretty, pretty tough. I applied for some other colleges within the United States, and they provided the acceptance, but nevertheless they said that you know, there are certain criteria that you need to fulfill in order for your visa to become extended, you know, when you are going to move outside of one university and go to another one, when you look at it for someone who has been in the United States, you say, oh my God, I need to jump through hoops in order to be able to move from here to there. So as a result, a portion of it ends up to be your own psychology because you don't know the do's and don'ts. Mm -hmm. So they added to the amount of paperwork that was necessary for the movement to take place. So I'm quite sure if I, I jumped through hoops, I could, have, I could have probably done that. But you see, when you are here for four years, you don't understand all the details. Right. When you see the barriers, you say, well, I'm gonna, just going to stay here. Yeah. But so it was more of an issue traveling internationally across international borders than it was, let's say, movement within the United that States? Was, yeah, that was more the case, yes. yeah. Now, Kamran, do you have any brothers and sisters? I have a sister who resides in Canada. Okay, and what was her story? Did she? What were the circumstances that had her leave as well? Was she, she had moved before prior uh, prior to me. Uh, they, they had moved probably about six or seven years before I come to United States as a student. Mm-hmm. Originally, they went to England and they were there for a while, for a few years. Then after that, they moved to Canada, and then later on, they became citizens of Canada. Their movement to Canada, or England, or Canada was not as a result of the revolution. Mm-hmm. So they're older than you are? My sister is 11 years old, older than me, mm-hmm. yes. So you have one sister? I have one sister, And no, yes. br- and no brothers? No brothers. Okay. No. And where are your parents? My father passed away when I was in the 8th grade, back in Iran. He, he was killed in a driving accident. Mm. My mother is in the United States. I actually lives close to my house. Mm-hmm. Where did you end up getting your bachelor's degree and in, and in what? I received my bachelor's degree in a state university of New York at Stony Brook. Then I continued in a master's program in the same university. I'm an engineer by profession, mm-hmm. and I received my master's degree in material science and engineering, and then I moved to California and got a job there, 
later on I decided that I'm going to stay in the United States. Oh, until then you were, had temporary status? When I received my master's degree, I was on an F-1 visa status, so I was a student. And since I had done some research work at Brookhaven National Laboratories for my master's thesis, after I completed my work there in the semiconductor industry, they needed people with material science background. So I ended up to be one of the luckier ones who was able to get a job in the semiconductor industry in California. Mm-hmm. So I moved there. Mm-hmm. And then later on, I became a permanent resident. And then later on, I became a citizen. You're not in California today, so what happened? So about in uh, two years, I was there for two years, and then I got married, and we decided that I like the East Coast because I was in New York for the first six years that I was in the United States. So as a result, my wife and I moved towards East Coast, and I got a job in Massachusetts with digital equipment, and then we moved to Massachusetts. This was 1984, mm. and we have been here since then. Mm-hmm. So, Kamra, what are your interests outside of work? I read a lot. I'm a reader. Mm-hmm. I like philosophy. Mm-hmm. I like all sorts of sciences. Mm-hmm. Basically, my area of uh, work, I exp- I've expanded that into nanotechnology and you know, various areas of reliability, which I study on my own. As I mentioned, I am an avid reader of philosophy and do studies on religion. I've had offered several youth classes on the topic of philosophy and religion for almost 14 to 15 years. What else do I like? (laughs) I uh, like gardening Mm. a lot. Mm -hmm. I like building stone walls <laughs> and doing anything that has to do with backyard. <laughs> yeah, that's I'm a tree and grass and uh, vegetable <laughs> person. <laughs> that's great. Now, you had mentioned soon after you came to the United States, I think, that you started investigating other religions and it, came, and it led you back to the Baha'i faith. Can you explain that a little bit more in detail? Yes, you see, one of the things, I always questioned the idea that, given that I was born in a Muslim country, and even though I had attended Baha'i Sunday schools and I came from a Baha'i family, it was really hard for me to understand what does it mean for a person to independently investigate another religion, because just to let you know, in Islamic countries, basically there is a fundamental belief that every child is born a Muslim. And the meaning of Islam is submission to the will of God, so that they believe that by birth an individual is in a state that should submit to the will of God. So naturally this is ingrained in the minds of the people. Since you are in that ambient view and opinion, you are bound to pick some of that up. So even though you are sent to a Sunday school, nevertheless, you always walk away and say, did I accept my religion because I was born in a Baha'i family, or did I accept the religion because I really independently investigated 
this faith for myself and chose it on based on my own opinions. So when I came to the United States, that was the time for me to really put all of these issues into question and try to come up with an answer to that. And as you know, university environment is an excellent environment for you to be able to explore various different things. Basically, you've got choices that extend to extremes of the spectrum. So you could do all sorts of things. <laughs> and uh, I'm quite sure you understand where I'm going with that. Yes. So basically, a number of ideologies in religion as well as various political views and so on and so forth was available to me. So basically I decided that I am going to go and sit with these people and see what everybody has to say. So basically this investigation took something of the order of two to three years where I explored various ideologies, including some of the political ideologies that various folks were talking about, some Buddhist views, various Christian groups participated in some Jewish organizations. Also, I pursued to see what Sufis have to say. Sufis are a Gnostic group in Islam. Excuse me, Cameron, can you explain what you mean by Gnostic? Gnostics are basically, this is a particular group where they are looking at some of the more spiritual aspects of a religion rather than the perspective of the laws of religion. So in Christianity, there was a group of Gnostics as well that these people explored some of the other dimension of Christianity where they attempted to interpret things, the teachings of the Gospels, in an extremely spiritual uh, manner rather than going with the literal meanings and what the book had to say in the overt sense. In Islam, that group is the Sufi, and there are several groups of them presently available in the United States. So I explored some of these concepts and ideas. Also, in parallel, one thing that really captured my attention was that the fact that I come to the United States and I entered this Baha'i community that was comprised of a Chinese family, a South American family, a couple of Iranian families, a couple of American families, an African family. So it was truly a mixed community. So I start looking at that and I'm scratching my head saying, well, Baha'i faith started in Iran. Why would a Chinese man want to accept what a Persian prophet had to say? And why would a South American or an African want to accept this? And I would start raising these questions, you know, at the Baha'i literature table that they had. So in parallel, I started exploring the faith from the very roots of it again. And for about two to two and a half years, you know, I uh, did this. And finally, I reached the conclusion that, you know, the faith has something interesting to offer. And one thing that really captured my attention among all these various organizations was the approach that 
Abdu'l-Bah, the son of Baha'u'llah, had offered. And that was as follows. You know, he said that basically to an individual, there are four paths available in terms of understanding something or conveying something to someone else to understand. And those four ways are as follows. He said either something has to be sensible. When you say sensible, you mean you perceive it through the senses? You perceive it through the senses. That's right. Okay. Either you can see it, hear it, touch it, smell it, in order to be able to associate reality with it and accept it. Or it has to be reasonable. The second way, he said, the second path available to us is if something is reasonable. And then he said that there is a third way. And he said that that is the medium of inspiration. It's something that some people call gut feeling. Some, some people call it illumination. It has nothing to do with sensibility or reasonability. It is something that sometimes you come across someone, you speak to them, and you have a good feeling about that individual. Sometimes you talk to somebody else. You don't get good vibrations. And that is the, the basic instinct that he's talking about. And then he said there is a fourth path available to an individual, and that is the path of religion, the path of revelation. So that which has been provided to humanity through prophets and messengers of God, such as Jesus, Moses, Muhammad, Baha'u'llah, and Krishna, and Buddha, and so on and so forth. Then he explains each one of these, and he says each one of these are not very robust by themselves. So that means if you rely on your senses alone, you're bound to make a mistake. And he gives an example. He says, if you look at the sun, uh, it is the sun that's rotating around the earth, and uh, that is an error. It is really the earth that's rotating around. And this, by the same token, he says, the reasoning process is not always correct because by itself, because reason is a function of situation. And as situation changes, reason changes. He says God feeling by itself is not acceptable because basically sometimes it might be coming from selfish feelings of an individual rather than the true inspiration. So as a result, it might be incorrect. And sometimes in regards to religion, you might have an incorrect understanding of religion. As a result, by itself, that may be incorrect. And then he provides a solution to this. He says, look at science. Science has been very convincing and was very successful because it relied on more than one criteria. It relied on two criteria of sensibility and reasonability. And it was able to come up with great answers. I came across this and I said, wow, this is amazing. Look at this. Look at, see how correct this particular recipe and approach is. And then later on, he goes on and says, if you really want to come up with a wholesome answer to anything, you really need to come up with a solution that satisfies all these four criteria. Something that is reasonable, something that is sensible, something that you have good gut feeling about, and something that is in the context and framework of the revelationary ideals and teachings, that solution is 
bound to be a correct solution, a wholesome solution. And you can see the parallelism between that and science. So you see, when I came across that, and I thought that Baha'i faith is offering even a more stringent criteria for accepting and rejecting things than science. Hmm. Because it is taking the scientific criteria and now it's imposing two other criteria on the top of that, which moderates the religious approach at the same time it benefits from its wisdom. And also it moderates that gut feeling and sense of inspiration, and it benefits from that. And the solution that comes up is scientific. At the same time, it could be extremely moral because it is using the criteria that is provided by religion. So in a sense, when I came across that, you know, considering my scientific background and engineering background, that was a real good proof for me that I felt comfortable that the faith really captures the essence of how I should approach life. And that was one of the things that really attracted me to the faith. And since then, as I explore the faith further, it has become even more deeply involved with it in the sense that as I keep digging in, I find much more reasonable and wonderful things about it. And, and I think it's really, truly a solution that should be applied in today's life. Now, you mentioned that you teach children's classes and that you cover a range of philosophy and religious topics in regards to those classes. Can you, right. go, can you go into some more detail in that regard? Yeah, basically, the age group that I have been working with has been from around 11 years old up to 1920. Basically, this is an age group where a child, a youth, and an individual is forming their views and opinions of what is reality and how could they separate that, separate that out from what I want to call virtual reality or just some image of reality. I have used two books, one from Baha'u'llah and another one from Adullah, in order to establish a platform upon which I could discuss all the various questions that the younger generation might have about religion, about society, about how the interaction of politics, religion, society, and human feelings and reason should take place. And you will find it very interesting to know that these young people, they come to the class and they sit down, and as they, in the beginning, they might yawn for about six or seven or eight sessions because they find it boring. Mm -hmm. But as they begin participating, listening, and they start raising their own questions, and they provide answers, it just becomes a wheel that starts turning. And it is amazing that the same person who was yawning in the beginning 
turns into someone who starts writing a commentary about the episode of the cave, for example, that Plato talks about. They go and explore that, and all of a sudden they start seeing that depending on where you are, your perspective about life changes. There is an allegory of the cave that you find in the writings of Plato, where he describes that if there is a cave and you are inside of that cave, and that cave is somewhat deep in the ground where you do not see the outside world, your perspective of reality is bound by that which is occurring there. And then there is this entire story that someone just moves outside of that cave and come into contact with the outside world, and they learn other things. And then what a hard time they have going back inside, trying to convince the people who are inside of the cave that the reality is somewhat different than what you believe. So it is like a journey that you try to take a young person from where they are, exploring anything and everything. You know, we talk about if one day at the, in the class they feel like talking about issues that they've had with other students, they can talk about it. If there is issue about racism, we can talk about it. We sit down and talk about that. If there are issues that we need to talk about world politics, we sit down and talk about that. The interesting thing about it is that at the end of the day, you end up seeing that everything becomes connected. And when they walk away from the class, and the period for this class is almost a year and a half to two years. There was one session that was two and a half years. Hmm. They really start exploring some of the philosophies of life. I've had people who come to the class and say, well, I used to, for example, go to a Sunday school in a church, and I was always told that, I should, these are not questions that I should ask. So all the questions that this gentleman wanted to ask in his Sunday school where he couldn't ask was asking here and, you know, exploring some answers. It's not that the goal was not to give them the answer, but to explore how to go after an answer. And he used some of the criteria that was provided in some answered questions by Abdul Baha or in the Book of Certitude by Baha'u'llah. And throughout this two and a half year curriculum, basically, we would go through the content of the book as well. So, as you see, it was a mixture of theology, philosophy, politics, human related issues, and you name it, you got it. <laughs> And that's what it was. Mm-hmm. And for your own reading, Kamran, what is of interest to you right now? I like history, philosophy. I have a library that probably has close to a thousand books, a thousand volumes in there. That is the stuff that I read. Mm-hmm. I'm constantly reading philosophy and history and issues that are happening in the world today as well as studying some of the older scriptures. Mm-hmm. And what are you reading right now? Actually, I'm working on a book, and I'm doing some research in the concept of the journey of a human being 
and what various religions have said about that journey from the time of conception and as it moved on. There are a lot of religions that advocate the idea that we have a beginning but we have no end. And this process has various stages and various grades and so on, that various religions have alluded to it. And the Baha'i Faith provides a wealth of information in that. And actually, I'm writing a book on that that I'm hoping that I can finish probably in another six months or so. So after the book, what do you see yourself doing in the future? Well, I'm going to continue with these classes. At this point, I'm a little bit busy in my life, so I am not offering any classes this year, but I'm hoping that starting next year, I am going to use another book from Baha'u'llah called The Seven Valleys and the Four Valleys and use that as a platform. On this book, the goal is to probably start with a slightly an older population from probably around 16 to 24, 26, have that for about somewhere between two to three years. So that is what I'm planning Mm -hmm. for doing. Now, you've mentioned two or three books in the Baha'i Faith, and maybe you could give a little summarization of each of them. Let's start with some answered questions by Baha'u'llah's son, Abdu'l-Baha. Yes, some answered questions is perhaps one of the most amazing compilations in religious history. And I think in the future, the future generations are going to have much to thank Laura Clifford Barney, who was a Western Baha'i, who had, had become a Baha'i, and goes to the Holy Land to visit Abdul Baha. And during the time frame that she was there, since she was, a, she was an educated person, she started asking a series of questions from Abdul Baha during the only time that he had available which was during lunch. So they had basically about half an hour of lunch, and Laura is sitting there with a translator and says, Abdul Baha, I've got questions. Would you please answer me? And she raises these questions, and Abdul Baha is in that session would provide the answer. And there are people there sitting there that will take his answer into writing and then later on ask him to approve it, to read it and correct it and approve it. And then later on, this compilation became a book that is called Some Answered Questions. It is a wonderful book in the sense that it provides answers to almost every aspect of human life, you know, whether... You're talking about theology, philosophy, history, various aspects of social assumptions, political assumptions. Abdullah provides tidbits of information in every one of these areas. And the interesting thing is that as one explores this by reading it several times, you find what a wholesome approach has been provided by Abdullah in this, in various areas that Laura Barney has raised these questions for. Now, Kamran, there are some Christian subjects covered in that book. 
That is that is correct. Can you just list some of the subjects that in that area? Laura Barney asked Abdul Baha about several topics that were of interest to Christians. For example, one of the fundamental questions had to do with the episode of creation in the book of Genesis. That's what the meaning of that is. And then, along with that, she asks about the Darwinian concept of evolution and what is the relationship between the Darwinian concept of evolution and that sixth day of creation that is discussed in there. And Abdul Baha probably is the only person who has provided such a robust answer to this. And we are talking about early 1900s that this phenomenon occurred. It is just an amazing set of answers. And then she starts asking some questions about the concept of God and how could someone potentially believe in God. And then he takes she takes the questions into various areas of the Old Testament and the New Testament. So there are a chapter on the book of Daniel about some prophecies that Abdu'l-Baha discusses and provides an interpretation of the meaning of and then several chapters of the book of Revelation, as well as the meaning of Trinity and some various peripheral topics of interest in Christianity in regards to, for example, the bread and the wine and the resurrection of Christ and so on and so forth. So these are perhaps some high-level review of some of those topics that are there. Mm-hmm. Then the second book that you referred to was The Book of Certitude by Baha'u'llah. I think the name, The Book of Certitude, captures the essence of what is there. It's an exegetical book that was revealed by Baha'u'llah in about two days in answer to the question of the uncle of the Bob. As I mentioned before, there were two appearances that occurred in Iran in the middle of the 19th century. One, it was in the eighth year, 1844. The other one was in 1863. In 1844, the Bab or the Gate, who had claimed to be the John the Baptist for the appearance of the returned Christ, appeared among these people, and he proclaimed the message. And the uncle of the Bab or the uncle of the John the Baptist of the Baha'i Revelation, had some questions after the Bob was put to death, similar to John the Baptist. His family were very upset, and one of the uncles had gone to the place that Baha'u'llah was. Baha'u'llah was basically thrown out of Iran, and he was sent towards Baghdad in Iraq, and he was there for about 10 years. So towards the end of his stay in Iraq, very closely, it was about the end of 1862, the uncle of the Bob goes there and says that my nephew had claimed to be such a personality. And I still cannot make sense of how could it be possible for my nephew to have fulfilled all these biblical prophecies and Islamic prophecies in regards to the appearance or the return of John the Baptist. Would it be possible for you to answer these series of questions for me so that I attain certitude in regards to his claims? And that is how the book 
really moves towards having the title of the Book of Certitude because it provides certitude in that area. So basically, he raised a series of questions about what are the signs of the appearance of the return that is supposed, was about to take place in 1844 in regards to the appearance of coming on the clouds of heaven and so on and so forth. And Baha'u'llah goes step by step describing the meanings of some of the basic themes that appear in biblical prophecies. For example, when the angels are supposed to be standing in order and the sound of trumpet is going to occur and then the Christ is going to appear, His Majesty riding upon the, upon the clouds of heaven, when the sun is going to be darkened and the moon is going to turn into red color and then a smoke is going to arise from the earth. Baha'u'llah goes through these various aspects of these prophecies, whether they are from the Bible or from the Islamic scriptures, and he describes every one of these. And he says that by what means an a person who appeared to be very ordinary to the population who were his contemporaries could have possibly fulfilled this. And within that book, actually Baha'u'llah alludes to his own appearance as the promised Christ or the promised personality whom the Bab had uh, spoken of. The uncle of the Bob reads this book, and actually he becomes a believer, and the entire family become believers. And finally, the book by Baha'u'llah called The Seven Valleys and the Four Valleys. Actually, let me begin with The Seven Valleys. This is, these are very esoteric type of compositions among Baha'i books, in the sense that Baha'u'llah answers some of the questions of two Sufi leaders of his time, with whom he was friends. I'm not sure if you are familiar with the concept of the seven valleys. There are, among Sufi writings, there is a Sufi master by the name of Attar, who had written a book which was called The Conference of the Birds. And in this Conference of the Birds, there is a section that talks about is a poem that talks about the uh, seven stages of the evolution of the human soul from the abode of dust into the heavenly homeland. So basically, Sufis believe that a human being, from a spiritual sense, has the ability to move through these seven stages in order to be able to attain the presence of God. What Baha'u'llah does, he takes the same concept and he provides an interpretation of what these seven steps are in the context of a, in a revelationary context, in a sense that now it is not a Sufi master, it is not a poet or some, an ordinary human being who is writing this book, but someone who is of the same caliber as Jesus Christ. Imagine holding the pen and describing what these seven stages are supposed to be. 
And basically, as you move through these seven stages, you find out that in certain areas, he converges with the Sufi thought, and he approves of that which they have advocated. And there are certain areas that they say that is what, what was meant by this particular concept. And one of the things that, at the end of the day, in summary, what occurs is that Sufis believe that as you move through these seven stages, you become closer and closer and closer to God. Actually, it is a process of elevation, a spiritual elevation. Now, one of the assumptions that exists within the Sufi thought is that they are pantheists, meaning that they believe that there is only one reality, and that reality is the reality of God, and all that which exists in the universe are particles that are basically a part and parcel of that reality which is called God. So if we take the entire reality to be God, the entire universe are parts of God <coughs> that have turned into various realities, eventually everything is supposed to be moving towards its origin and become a part of God. Baha'u'llah says that there is a difference between God as the creator and human being as the creation and the rest of the universe as a creation. And all the stages of evolution and growth and a spiritual development that takes place for a human being occurs in the context of the world of creation and it has nothing to do with the essence of God. So yes, indeed, we go through this process of evolution, but we attain a, a, space, a state of closeness to God, which is within our hearts, and it has nothing to do with merging with God. So anyway, this Seven Valleys is an exploration of this Sufi view and the spiritual growth of a human being. And then later on, uh, Baha'u'llah writes another booklet, which is called The Four Valleys, which is the continuation of the Seven Valleys. And it explores some further steps that occurs in the, in the growth and development of a human being, above and beyond that which the Sufis believe. So in essence, these two books discuss these particular issues that we just talked about. Well, Kamran, thank you very much. You are very welcome. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Kamran Hakim, a Baha'i and a philosopher who has a day job as an engineer. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.